There are a few times where I get stuck and I'll ask for Dan's advice and he'll sort of push me in a sort of direction or, you know, I'll have a dish in place and like we're happy with the way it tastes, but I just can't get it to visually look the same way in the six penny standard. So, you know, I have all the mise en place there and then Dan will play around with the plating and compose a dish and then make it look a certain way. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Pressure is part and parcel of a career in hospitality. Stepping into challenging roles drives many to deliver the incredible experiences that set the benchmark in the industry. But what's it like taking on a role within a restaurant considered at the pinnacle of offerings? Anthony Schifoletti is a head chef of Sixpenny in Sydney. Anthony, how are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. How about yourself? I'm good. You've worked in some pretty incredible restaurants, but you've got yourself a, a job in a, in a restaurant that's really, you know, come to the fore and set a benchmark in the last couple of years at Six Penny. Did you feel pressures taking on that role? Uh, I mean, yeah, very much so. Like, obviously, you know, Six Penny has a, a massive reputation and going into a restaurant like that, you know, there's obviously a lot of sort of self-doubts and thoughts that go through your head starting in a position like that. And especially considering uh, when I took that job on, I hadn't really been working in restaurants for the last two years. You know, there was mm. a lot of sort of uh, a lot of sort of pressure starting there. But, um, you know, Dan was super supportive and, you know, sort of we worked really well together. So the transition into that restaurant um, was actually a lot smoother than I thought was gonna be, it was going to be. You mentioned that you hadn't really worked um, in that capacity for, for two years. It's been a crazy sort of two years. What, what's, what, have, what have you been doing in that time? Uh, so essentially, um, you know, I was working at Cirrus, um, you know, for almost three and a half years. And I had resigned back in uh, 2019 towards the end of the year. Um, and I was always meant to finish up around March in 2020. Um, so obviously with uh, COVID happening, um, it brought my resignation forward by a few weeks. So I was in this position where, you know, obviously the hospitality industry was at a standstill. I mean, the whole world was at a standstill, but I had uh, sort of no real job to go back to when things sort of reopened. Um, so, you know, I was always in that situation where I knew that I was at the stage of my career where I wanted to open my own restaurant or at least, you know, have the sort of complete control of the kitchen and, you know, be able to, you know, put my stamp on the on the menu in terms of the food. Uh, so I guess what I was trying to do in that sort of period of time was think of, you know, I guess for me personally, I think in, if you want to make it as a chef in Sydney, you kind of really need to have a sort of concept that stands out and needs to be u- unique and, you know, give a reason for people wanting to come to that restaurant. So I really sort of thought about different um, – you know, sort of concepts and like different ideas. Do I know? Do I do like a sort of restaurant based on cook, cooking over fire or, or whatnot? You know, all that sort of stuff's been done before. So in that time, anyway, during during the lockdown period, I, you know, I was always into sort of koji. I used a bit of koji during uh, my time at Cirrus, but I never really sort of bought the dry stuff and never really ventured into growing it myself. So I used the time during lockdown to sort of. Uh, learn about the whole procedures. You know, I, I jumped on eBay and bought all the little gadgets to sort of to to grow koji at home. I had a little esky that, I, yeah. So I had a little esky that I, you know, basically was growing koji out of a little um, little esky that I had at home. Then, 
you know, it it started off as just like a little, I don't know, like a little hobby, I, I guess. And, you know, after a few months of doing it, like I was, you know, making a little bit of shea kojis and small batches of miso. And then I, I know it sounds a bit cliche, but I literally had like a light bulb, light bulb moment and was like, you know, this is it. I'm going to, I'm going to do a restaurant based on koji fermentation. Uh, so I guess that's sort of how the original idea started. Um, and yeah, I mean, through time, you know, I was like, you know, trying to decide, okay, well, how am I going to make this happen? Cause you know, trying to do it from scratch or trying to build restaurant from scratch, you know, seemed like a massively daunting task. And I didn't really have any contacts of people saying, Hey, you know, I've got a restaurant opening. Do you want to take over as head chef and, you know, bring the concept? So I was sort of like working from scratch, so to speak. Um, so basically what I was, you know, or what my mindset was like, okay, well, if I'm going to do this, I need to sort of, or if I'm going to do this concept, I kind of need to build a larder, so to speak, and, you know, start having big batches of misos and the different sort of garams and pastes and all that sort of stuff. And not only that, I need to sort of, train myself in actually how to make it because you know it was all very completely new to me and I, I I'd read all the like the Noma book and you know the guide to fermentation um that Sandor Katz book and all, all the all the information I could sort of get online and it, to, to be completely honest it was quite <laughs> it was quite hard at the start because you know there were just all these words that I've never heard of before and I never really dove into the world of fermentation so it was it was very difficult so I'd have to keep rereading the same books and eventually after rereading things so many times, like it sort of slowly started to make sense. Uh, and then, yeah, so essentially, you know, I was at this warpath of like, okay, I want to do this and this is how am I going to get there? So fortunately at the time, um, my girlfriend was working at the old Claire hotel, um, doing the digital marketing over there. Uh, so I sort of struck up a deal with the general manager that, I was going to go into that space as uh, head chef and, you know, I was going to look after the whole food programming there and, like, you know, do all the room service, the rooftop bar, the bar menu, all that sort of stuff. Um, and in return, I was able to use the resources of the hotel to, you know, work on the concept of my restaurant. Yeah, so basically, you know, I was going in early or, you know, on days off to sort of, you know, grow koji and, you know, I was able to ups. I was able to upsize quite drastically because I was working from home before, like in my small two-bedroom terrace house in the inner west. And now I've got this whole, like, you know, commercial kitchen at my disposal. So it was it was a big drastic change to sort of the fact that, you know, now I could really sort of up production. And, you know, it was in that year that I was at the Old Clare that really sort of, you know, I guess brought me to the point where I am today. Well, tell us a little bit about Koji and, and what you do with it. And uh, are you still producing it? Uh, yeah, massively. So, I mean, <laughs> yeah, uh, like basically now, obviously, now that I'm at Sixpenny, a lot of all that production gets done at Sixpenny. Um, you know, they've got a little shed in the back that I've got my chamber at. Um, I have a storage unit at Wildflower Brewery where I'm storing a lot of my uh, ferments and I've also got a garage at home that I'm storing some of my stuff as well. Tell us a little bit about Koji and what you use it for and, and, and where it's being used. <laughs> yeah, so it's quite heavily drastic on the six penny, six penny menu. Um, you know, I 
spoke to Dan prior to me starting there about, you know, this is the concept that I had um, and, you know, he was heavily in, into it. Like we did a tasting at the old Claire and he was like, yeah, you know, this is awesome. This tastes amazing. So when I started at Six Penny, I told him that this is like the concept that I wanted to bring on board and he was fully open to it. So uh, currently on the menu at Six Penny, I mean, pretty much most of the dishes contain some sort of element of um, koji fermentation, whether it's like a fermented miso paste or some sort of garum or like a, a koji butter sauce. Um, I mean, yeah, I just find that it sort of – it just makes everything taste better. <laughs> and it, it did take a bit of time to sort of, you know, um, I guess – learn how to use it because uh, you know when I was at the hotel I wasn't really using any of it on the menu there it was just p producing and like learning on how to actually make it uh, so it wasn't until I was at six penny and started like coming up with dishes like was the first time I implemented those products into the menu I want to explore sort of what you're doing at six penny with Dan and the team there but what sort of role did food play in, in your family growing up? Well, I mean, I was I was pretty fortunate because I grew up in a an Italian household. So you know, my mother she was a, a fantastic cook, um, and you know, I guess food was always really quite important in our household. You know, like having a family dinner, you know, everyone would have to you know come down, sit down, wash our hands, and all sit down and eat at the same time as a family. No TV, um, so it was you know very fortunate in the fact that I have good memories of food when I was a child and, you know, I wasn't that much of a fussy eater. I'd always eat what mum would cook and, you know, should cook amazing things. And not only that, food was always very important sort of in terms of celebration in our household. Like, so for every, you know, baptisms, Christmases, Easter's, any sort of family celebration, it always end up being back at either my house, oh, sorry, my family home or my auntie or uncle's house and there just would be a big like <laughs> smorgasbord of different sort of food and it was crazy like even to this day my mum's like insistent of you know me and my two older brothers we try to at least have a family dinner at least maybe once a month and she would like want everyone to be there with the family and the kids and we all have this big family dinner together. It, it's amazing. It's like a great family experience. And, you know, she being the, the Italian mother that she is, she always like, you know, if there's 10 of us eating, she'll cook for 25. And <laughs> no, no bit of a lie, I'll take home like three or four takeaways of food and me and my girlfriend don't have to cook for the next two or three days. It's, it's awesome. <laughs> do, do you have any sort of dishes or feasts that you remember that you can tell us about from growing up? Uh, I'd say, like, say so it's quite funny because every time I do go to, like, home for uh, for dinner, my mum always say, oh, like, what do you want? Or, you know, she knows, she, she she's like a, a feeder. She just loves to please people through food. And I guess, you know, growing up, probably my two favourite things that my mum used to make were arancini, like the arancini rice balls, and involtini, which is like these little meat parcels filled with, like, ham and uh, breadcrumbs and some parmesan cheese that you should just grill. And like I, yeah, every time I go home, I pretty much always ask for those because, yes, they're really good. When did a career in food sort of first spark your interest? Uh, so, I mean, I guess, you know, I I came from like a middle-class family. So, you know, my parents really in, you know, instructed me like a, a good, strong work ethic. Uh, so when I was of the working age, I think it was like 14 or nine months, um, you know, if I wanted money to do things, I'd have to go out and, get a job to to make money so you know I I did what most teenagers did back then and I went to McDonald's and I went to KFC and I had, like tried to apply for jobs and 
I, I actually didn't I didn't get any hired by any, either of them. So what what I ended up doing, I was lucky. I worked uh, down the road from the Black Stump Chagu. I, I don't know, you know, the franchise of steakhouses that are obviously now gone. Um, so I went there and uh, applied for a kitchen hand job. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's it's pretty like funny how you know I. I did always have an interest in food growing up, but I didn't think of it as a career until I sort of went into that kitchen hand role. And yeah, I, I worked there from when I was about 15 to almost 17, 17 and a half. And, you know, I, I progressed pretty well there considering like, you know, I did the kitchen hand for about, uh, for about a year and then, you know, a natural progression, I did the salads and like helped with some of the desserts. And then, you know, towards my time of leaving there, I was, um, you know, cooking on the main grill and I, you know, I was still at high school and it wasn't really a career, it wasn't really a career for me, but I was not to sound arrogant or anything, but I was cooking a lot better than what, um, the chefs or, I mean, I wouldn't call them chefs, but what the cooks were cooking at that stage. And I guess that sort of was a time where I was like, you know, I'm actually pretty good at this. Um, and that's how I guess I sort of got led into cooking. You ended up doing an apprenticeship. Take, take us back to that time. Um, what was sort of the really important sort of venues for you early on in your career? So I guess, yeah, I finished high school and, you know, I was unsure of where I wanted to work and I didn't really know too much about restaurants back then. Um, I knew of the restaurant called The Summit based on – uh, I can't remember. I think my family told me about it or something. And I, to me, I thought that was probably one of the best restaurants in Sydney purely because it had the best view. So I applied for that job as a first-year apprentice um, and and I got it. And I worked there for about two and a half years. Uh, as a first job, it was like – I guess it was a great experience. Um, you know, they were very nurturing. It was a big team. So, you know, there was probably about another eight, eight or so apprentices, I'd say. Um, and yeah, like it was just very nurturing, you know, it wasn't like a, it wasn't too chaotic, you know, you do big numbers there, but it was like a sort of great introduction to, to the restaurant world. Um, and so I, I worked there for about two and a half years and I had a great relationship with Michael Moore. Um, you know, and I, I felt like as an apprentice, I was doing really well there. Uh, you know, not to sound cocky, but I thought I was doing really good. And, you know, I, I was like, introduced to through a friend there about sort of um i guess the world of fine dining and you know we started talking about restaurants then i started learning about you know the, the hat system and you know hearing about restaurants like key and rockpool and um bilson's and you know all those sort of big hitters sort of really opened my eyes to fine dining and i was unsure where i wanted to work um but um, there's something about like the whole French and you know the French Fringlish sort of style of food that really appealed to me. So I applied for an, a job at uh, Picasso back yeah back at Clarence Street, and I guess you know this is me, 19, 20 years old, cocky, leaving after um, the summit. I'll tell you what, in three days I got fucking put back in my place. <laughs> yeah, that that kitchen there was like. I, I say this to a lot of people. It was like one of the most sort of eye-opening experiences of what fine dining is or what it was back then. And, you know, I was there for, oh, I can't remember, probably close to two and a half, three years. And, yeah, it was a slog for sure. But in saying that, I, I mean, I took away so much from that place. And, you know, I still have a lot of respect for Justin North to this day. You know, it was a very hard place to work and, you know, being being quite young uh, you know, it's it's quite physically 
you know, very hard. Um, but, you know, I had this ambition to sort of just do really well and, you know, I, I pushed through it, I guess. You mentioned how eye-opening that experiencing the experience was for you at Picasso. Do you have any stories of, of what it was like working there and sort of what you took from it? Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think of ones that I can actually say. Uh, <laughs> no, I guess, I guess the biggest thing was, you know, the, the, the level of standard compared to what, you know, I was exposed to at the summit. I mean, you know, everything just had to be perfect and I guess – the the main difference was what I th- thought was the workload was so so huge and like the amount of work that you had to get done before lunch service was just so 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 hard and you know obviously when you first start it it almost seems like an impossible task but you know through repetition and like you know through going down during service and whatnot you you eventually sort of gradually become better and better and like think of faster ways to work or like you know I got to all these boxes of artichokes but you know are you time yourself and try to get faster the next day and all these little things sort of just you know make you a better chef so I guess working at the cast sort of made me really you know think about how to become better and like you know you got to sort of adapt or die really because that's the sort of mentality that it was and it definitely sort of um made me a better chef, I would say for sure. You you did a bit of travelling overseas. Tell us about that period of time and your decision to leave Australia. What was it triggered by? Yeah, so I guess you know, I, I, I'd worked at Bacass and after Bacass I was at Pier for a little bit and I left once um, once Grant sort of handed in his resignation and like Pier started to give back their hats. And I guess, you know, I was quite attracted to that sort of high energy, fast paced, you know, adrenaline driven sort of uh, restaurants. And I didn't really feel like there was much in Sydney where I wanted to work. I did a few stages here and there, nothing sort of really tickled my fancy. Um, and I always had planned on traveling overseas. So the timing just sort of felt right. Um, uh, so I was always planning on doing Europe, or particularly London, um, only purely because it was so easy just to get the work visa at that time. So what I decided to do, I had a, fortunately a friend that was working at uh, Noma at the time. So I did a, a two-month stage at Noma uh, when I first got overseas, which was a, an incredible experience. Uh, I mean, this was back in, oh, I think, 2011-ish. So, you know, it's quite funny that yeah, obviously Net Noma now is so like heavily uh, driven in the whole koji fermentation. But at the time when I was there, um, it was more about the foraging and the lacto-fermentation. Uh, so Noma was an incredible experience just to sort of see a, a world-class restaurant operate with the vast amount of staff and, you know, the 30 stages that were there and the production team. It was a really great experience. Uh, so from there, I moved to London. Um, and then, like most other Australians, I ended up taking a job at the Ledbury. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, again, I did a stage there and... Yeah, it was just one of those sort of situations where, you know, I worked there for a week and I'm like, yeah, this is an awesome kitchen. It was like high paced. There was a lot of, um, I mean, it just tickled, ticked all the right boxes in terms of a restaurant that I wanted to work in. So I worked there for a year and a half. And again, you know, it was almost like stepping into the Bacass sort of period in terms of like after my first month there, I was like, wow, this is like really cooking at the highest, highest level, you know. Some of the things I saw there was, like, just incredible. The Like, Brett's sort of standards were so high and, like, nothing would leave the kitchen without him, like, sort of looking at it or, you know, without it being to his standard. 
like I remember some sort of situation, you know, I was cooking on hot entrees. And, you know, if you're coming up on a table of six, um, you know, you know, I don't know, the mackerel dish was like a quite a famous dish that he had. And if you're coming up on six and just one of them was like slightly overcooked, you'd get the fish thrown back at you and you'd have to redo the whole table. And it's just like little things like that that just sort of think like, you know, the reason why this class, this restaurant is world class is because, you know, everything is just like leaves the kitchen is how it should be. You know, a lot of restaurants sort of, you know, when you're in the street, you're like, oh, just send it or, you know, compromise a little bit. Like, you know, yeah, it's not perfect, but it's still okay to send. And, you know, everyone's guilty of doing it for sure. But there it just never happened. And, you know, I, I thought the food that at the library was, in, like, amazing. You know, obviously it wasn't probably the most – it wasn't the most innovative, but it was just things cooked to perfection, you know, the best produce, produce from France and – it just, yeah, it was it was incredible. Uh, I had an amazing time there. When you came back to Australia, you spent a lot of time in the in the Bentley Group with um, Brent Savage and Nick Hildebrandt. We've had we've had them on the show, and they're are renowned for what the, the impact they've had on the culinary landscape. Well, tell us about your time in the group and working with them. Yeah, so um, after coming back, I was a bit uncertain what to do. Um, so I ended up taking. Because uh, I mean, I've only ever just worked as a chef to party at that stage, and coming back, I was like, okay, well, I think I'm, I'm definitely ready for a, a more senior role now. Um, I originally did a trial at Bentley for a sous chef job, um, and I can't remember what the situation was, whether they weren't hiring or or whatnot. But Brent Savage, working his magic, was like, you know, why don't you come down to Yellow and have a look there and see if you like it? So. I went to Yellow and, you know, I worked with Adam Wolfers for a little bit and I you know, I was quite, you know, shocked. I didn't really think I was going to like Yellow, but I actually loved the Yellow Kitchen and, you know, that was a great time. And this is prior to them um, going vegetarian and I thought – and I always really thought while working there that Yellow was a highly underrated restaurant compared to, you know, the, the accolades that it wasn't getting. Um, but I, I was there for about a year and a half and – was part of the transition from when they went from um, like a meat-based restaurant to vegetarian, and you know and that was that was a great experience. Um, and then, yeah, I guess sort of after my time there, I was sort of at the point like, okay, I wanted something a bit more. Well, I wouldn't say challenging, but I was you know working towards you know wanting to do a head chef role, and I didn't really see um, a future there. Um, so. Again, speaking to Brent, he was like, okay, you know, that's fine. If you want to move in, that's all good. But, you know, I've got a new restaurant opening, Cirrus. Do you want to come help out with the opening? I was like, sure, why not? You know, it's, you know, openings are always <laughs> quite fun and busy. And, like, I, you know, I love that sort of stuff. So I went over to help. And, yeah, I mean, uh, Alex Morris at the time was the head chef. And then after six weeks, there was, you know, um, it wasn't for him. So he, he left and then Brent was like, do you want to take the head chef position? I was like, fantastic. So it sort of all worked out well. And then I was, yeah, I was that serious for yeah three and a half years, really. Well, Cirrus was a part of that sort of move, um, where we sort of fell in love with seafood again through restaurants. It was a sort of a wave happening at the time with Josh Nyland and and Cirrus and a few others popping up. Um, tell us about Cirrus and and being part of that and that real focus on seafood. Yeah, so I guess I never really realised how much I love seafood until I started working at Cirrus. Um, you know, I guess that the 
the biggest problem I found working there was, you know, being a seafood-only restaurant, you know, if you got six or so main courses and there's, you know, there's only so many fish that you can use and availability or, you know, you've got a, a dish on with this and then the next day that fish isn't available. And you got, so you have to be quite adaptive in terms of what you can and can't do and, you know, it's be smart with dishes being or garnishes being interchangeable with different styles of fish. Uh, but, you know, I I really enjoyed working with seafood and, you know, I guess still to this day, I mean, if you look at the Six Pennies menu, I guess it's, it's quite still seafood-focused. Uh, uh, but yeah, it's, it was a good time at Cirrus. Like it was a hard slog though as well. Um, you know, being open seven days, lunch and dinner, um, not having that time to sort of stop and reset made it very hard. Um, but again, like, you know, I was a bit of a suck of a punishment, but I just love that sort of, I love that challenge. You know, it was, it was hard, but you know, Brent was supportive and, you know, it sort of gave me what I needed, but yeah, it was it was a great time. What did you learn about seafood during that time? Was there any sort of species or dishes that kind of speak of the growth that you had there in regards to seafood as a cook? Um, I guess, you know, what what I sort of took away from there the most in terms because, I mean, we used the the Dacosti, well, it was Dacosti at the time, and then they moved to Get Fish. So I had a really strong relationship with uh, Jason Frank. And, you know, we worked really closely together in terms of trying to get sort of um, unique species. But again, like I, was, like I was saying to you before, it was quite hard because they're like, Tones, we got this. And then, you know, I'd have it for one or two days and you put the dish on and the next day, like, oh, I can't get it anymore. So it was like really quite hard to sort of have that consistency. But, you know, they'll some, you know, they'll come to say, hey, Tones, look, I've got some leather jacket cheeks, which I, you know, I worked with before. And I was like, wow, this is a really cool product. Or, you know, skull island and prawns were really good. Or all the sort of, you know, reef fish from far north Queensland were amazing. Like, yeah, it was really good. How did the role at Sixpenny come about? So, going back to what I was saying before, you know, I was at the Old Clare Hotel with this, you know, ambition to sort of open a restaurant. Um, so... I had the, had the restaurant name sorted because that was sort of like the first thing I thought of and it was called Cura. And basically, I was working towards this, doing all my ferments and yeah, Dan just sort of approached me, one, well, sent me a text message out of the blue one day and was like, hey mate, I've got a head chef position available if you're interested, give me a call. And yeah, it was just sort of, I went to the restaurant the following day. I guess this is still, this was during the Sydney's second lockdown. So I think they were doing the bake sale at the time. So I went and sort of met him at the restaurant and had a chat with him and go, listen, Dan, like, this is where I'm at. Um, this is what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to open this, um, you know. I guess what, what my biggest thing was when Dan first spoke to me about it, I, the first thing that went through my head was, you know, I've been working so hard towards trying to open this restaurant. Do I really want to sort of give it all up and then be the head chef of six or any? But I sort of explained to Dan where I was at and he really took on board the whole fermentation and the koji thing and wanted to implement that onto, I guess, the, the growth and the development of Six Penny. Six Penny is uh, renowned as one of the best in in Australia. Take us into the kitchen and and what it's like to work with Dan and the team compared to, you know, the days of Bacass or or the Ledbury. So I guess the the ki- kitchen at Six Penny is like a, it's a great kitchen for starters, and I feel like the kitchen is quite big 
considering the size of the dining room. Um, I guess that the biggest challenge or hurdles that I sort of faced um, starting there was obviously having this whole uh, fermentation program that I wanted to sort of implement. It requires a lot of space, and that's probably the one thing that Sixpenny doesn't have. So, you know, it was really quite hard to, you know, sort of get the ball rolling in terms of fermentation because, you know, I, I literally have no space to to put anything. So, you know, I was quite vocal at the start with Dan to let him know, you know, this is what I need and this is my heart. And, you know, credit to Dan, he, as soon as I said that I needed something, he would like make it happen. You know, I told him I told him I need space and then like within a few months we had all these new shelves built in the restaurant to have all my jars of like fermentage uh, sorry, all my jars of misos and different pastes and garams and stuff like that. And then you know, I said I'd need space for like the larger things. Then he organized the warehouse space down at Wildflower. So, you know, he's been very accommodating, which is fantastic because, you know, it, obviously, I couldn't do it without him for sure. Has your cooking changed during your time at Sixpenny? I'd say it hasn't changed while I was at Sixpenny, but definitely since my last job at Cirrus compared to now, um, you know, obviously there's there's been a massive change. Um, you know, I try to sort of implement some sort of koji-based fermentation in all my dishes, whether there's a a touch of miso paste in roasted artichokes or, you know, a f dash of garum in a vinaigrette or whatnot, whatever it may be. Sometimes it's quite full flavoured and other times, you know, you won't even know that it's there. Um, I guess sort of the, the reason why I do that is because for, first and foremost, I feel like it makes food taste delicious. And I guess I just sort of wanted to stand out and, you know, have a bit more of a my own sort of identity and you know I know I'm obviously not the first person to do this but I feel like I'm sort of one of the first one of the first chefs to do it in Sydney <laughs> so that's sort of where we're at. Tell us a bit about dish creation do you do you and Dan work together on dishes or does someone start with an idea how, how does it work in the kitchen there? Uh, so essentially basically you know I'll sort of come up with a, a an idea or a concept and I'll start working on something and you know if if it all goes well and it just gets a tick of approval. It goes throughout the menu. But, you know, there are a few times where I get stuck and I'll ask for Dan's advice and he'll sort of push me in a sort of direction or, you know, I'll have a dish in place and, like, we're happy with the way it tastes, but I just can't get it to visually look the same way in the six penny standard. So, you know, I'll have all the mise en place there and then Dan will play around with the plating and compose a dish and then make it look a certain way. Um, but, you know... We work very well together. Um, you know, we're completely up front with each other. You know, if he doesn't think something's right, he'll say it. And, you know, if I don't agree with what he's saying, I'll say it. And there's no, like, sort of any ego or anything about it like that. You know, we just work really well together. The exploration you've had into fermenting is quite quite incredible. Do you, what, what do you see in its future? Is it something beyond Sixpenny for you? Oh, 100%. Like, so I've actually started um, – so because i taken this job at Six Penny and the whole dream of Cura, the restaurant happening, um, has – I wouldn't say disappeared. It's definitely, like, gone further down the track now. But what I've done instead is um, created Cura Seasonings, which is basically um, – 
products that I'm selling online and through retailers and they're f- little fermentation, like uh, different sort of miso paste. I've got some shea kojis and then mami seasoning. So these are, these are products that I'm trying to, well, I'm just trying to build like a sort of a brand and sort of get more, build more awareness about these koji products and, you know, make them more easy to use for the home cook essentially because um, they're not really s- suited like these products aren't really suited for restaurants, even though I have had a few chefs hit me up and say, hey, can you please supply me with, you know, a t- tomato paste or a black garlic miso? I just can't keep up with the production, to be honest. So I'm just only doing small jars for the for the home cook. Uh, but, yeah, I do really want to sort of, for this business, uh, I do really want the Cura Seasonings brand to grow and for the business to sort of get larger. And it's just all completely done on the side at the moment. So it's a bit of a juggling act trying to do six penny and on my days off do all the Cura seasoning stuff. Um, but, you know, I'm, I am making it work and I'm not afraid of hard work. You know, I'm doing six, seven days a week for the last year or so. So it's, yeah, it's slowly coming together, but it's taking time. Well, you you find yourself in an incredible position with that six penny and and this fermenting um, product that you've created. What, what do you love about what you do? I, I guess it's just sort of the what fascinates me the most is well, what sort of got me hooked on koji was the fact that you know so, something so simple that only like a miso paste, for example, that's only two or three ingredients. From how it transforms based on the enzymes it produces, I just find so fascinating. And, you know, when I first started reading about koji and all that sort of stuff, I was unaware of its possibilities. And I just thought, yep, okay, you make rice koji, and then from rice koji you can make a standard white miso or a dark miso. Um, But after a lot of experimenting, like, you know, you can – I mean, I hate calling them miso, so I prefer to call them paste, but you can make, like, pastes out of – anything like I've you know I mix barley koju with artichokes and let that ferment for six months or you know I mix black garlic with soybean koji and let that ferment and you get like this incredibly complex delicious umami slightly acidic sort of paste and they're, they're very unique products in terms of like there's nothing else in the market like it and I guess I love that sort of um, exclusiveness or that you know we're the only ones that sort of have have that access to it. And, yeah, I just f- find it super fascinating. Well, it's amazing to have you on uh, Deep in the Weeds today to hear just a part of your story. Congratulations on, on what you're building and doing there. Um, please keep in touch and uh, we'll catch up again soon. No worries, Huck. Thanks for the chat. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.